Henry Seagrave was familiar with doing the impossible. He was already a world-renowned driver with several titles and accolades under his belt when he arrived to the beaches of Daytona, Florida. It was the early 20th century, and as more and more innovations in technology swept through the world, folks started exploring the lengths to which they could take their new man-made designs. The first manned flight by the Wright brothers was 1903. Automobiles came to prominence less than two decades before that. The very concept of transportation was changing at a rapid pace, and people were extremely attracted to what exactly that meant. The thrill of it was a draw for folks. For a time, most of our focus in the United States was on fascinating aviation figures. Through the First World War, airplanes were the new technology of warfare, which led to the popular mythos of the German fighter pilot known as the Red Baron. Once the war was over, there became more pop culture figures. Amelia Earhart, for example, rose to prominence when she became the first solo female pilot to fly above 14,000 feet. A few years later, Charles Lindbergh boarded his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, and flew across the Atlantic Ocean to Paris, non-stop. That had never been done before, though our memory of that event has been clouded by Lindbergh's atrocious personal views. He was an outspoken bigot and devout anti-Semite. Nevertheless, the 20s were a time of exciting adventurers pushing their vehicles to the limit, and the whole world was watching. The year was 1927. Lindbergh took his flight in May. Two months earlier, in March, Henry Seagrave was sitting in his vehicle on the sands of Daytona Beach, Florida. He was about to make his own history. Not in flight, but behind the wheel of an automobile. Henry Seagrave was born in 1896 in Baltimore, Maryland. He grew up in Ireland and was, in fact, a British national, making him a citizen of the United Kingdom despite being born in the U.S. He joined up with British forces at the age of 18, right as the First World War was beginning. He was a war hero and saw several bouts of face-to-face -face combat against German soldiers. After being wounded in the middle of the war, he returned to service as a pilot. Again, he saw combat, and again, he was injured when his plane crashed. He didn't enter combat again, but continued to serve with the British forces until the end of the war. In those years, he faced several exhilarating experiences, but he retired from military service by 1919, soon after the First World War was over. Soon, he pursued his interest in his next great adventure. As the 1920s began, Henry Seagrave took up racing around the world. In 1920, quote, his first victory came in only his second race, end quote. He became a British racing phenom quickly and started representing Britain in international outings. He kept pushing the limits on his vehicles, participating in Grand Prix races across Europe, and in 1923, after racing for only three years, he won the French Grand Prix, becoming the first British person in a British car to win a Grand Prix, to win any Grand Prix. He was rising in his powers, growing in popularity, and yet as the mid-20s came around, Seagrave retired from racing. He clearly had a passion for cars and for speed and excitement, but he had much greater heights he was pushing toward. Anyone could be a good race car driver, but what if you could use your car to push a new limit? What if you could use it to go faster than anyone had ever gone before? The BBC states that because of the accidents that befell him during the war, Henry was far more cautious when it came to driving automobiles. He needed a track that was safe for him to barrel his car at an unprecedented speed, somewhere free of obstacles, free of obtrusions, and most importantly, flat. 
There was a spot that was already known by many as a great area to test out the speed of your car, to push them to the limit in a perfect setting. For two decades, folks had been driving their vehicles along the sands of Daytona Beach, testing how quickly their vehicles could drive a mile along the hard-packed sand of the Atlantic coast. When Seagrave was ready to push his vehicle to the limit to set that brand new land speed record, he knew Daytona was the only place to be. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the racers of Daytona, how our eastern shores became the site for land speed records, how the sport evolved over 60 years, and the museum that collects and catalogs those individuals who sought to harness their speed. Before we get into that story, I want to tell you about this week's episode sponsor. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the episode description. Thank you to Atrombo Creative for sponsoring this episode of wait five minutes. All right, on to our story this week. Situated in the shadow of the towering stadium of the Daytona 500 Speedway, the Motorsports Hall of Fame is a unique museum. It is not a museum dedicated exclusively to NASCAR or even exclusively to the Daytona 500. It's not even a museum necessarily exclusively dedicated to racing. It is a Hall of Fame honoring motorsports in all its variation, including cars, boats, airplanes, and motorcycles. Though I will admit, it is mostly a collection of some of the most fascinating racing cars I have ever seen. I got there right when they opened for the day, looking for my tour guide, Gary Chapels. I was sent by one friendly individual after another deeper into the museum, each pointing me in the direction of Gary. I was in the lobby, and then I entered the main exhibit, and then I entered the back rooms. I saw a lot before I even found my tour guide. When I entered that main exhibit of the museum, even though I was basically alone, my jaw hit the floor. It is a massive open room with cars all over the main floor space, a wall of cars to the side, side hallways with more exhibits, and other vehicles literally hanging from the ceiling. It's a lot to take in. It is so colorful and bright and full. You feel like it would take you hours to take in everything. I was there for a long time, and I still feel like I missed some things. I need to go back and take in more. It is an amazing, amazing space. Eventually, I step through a curtain and into an exhibit still under construction and find Gary in the break room. He offers me a cup of coffee, which I gladly accept, and we return to the museum, though he warns me. He may have to step away every once in a while to welcome folks who just finished a tour, but we'll come back to that in a few minutes. It's kind of a dream job for Gary, who takes me around the main floor of the museum, pointing out so many of the incredible cars on display. We poked our heads through windows, examined layers of paint, analyzed the aerodynamics of cars. Gary is eager to share about every single vehicle in the museum, and has a full story to tell about each of them. 
I've, I've always been a race fan. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not a huge historian, but I, you know, I, I like the, the history of NASCAR. Sure. Um, I started watching NASCAR when I was in, you know, back in the 80s when I was a youngster. Yeah. Um, just got intrigued by the, the history of it, and I moved here from, from Dallas, Texas three years ago. Oh, nice. And trying to, looking for a job and saw, saw an ad for this, and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> When we drift back over toward the section of the museum about the early years, I ask him, why Daytona? Why did the drivers come to Daytona in the first place? They chose here because of the way our beaches are. Mm -hmm. We have very hard beaches, uh, especially during, during low tide. Right. So they're, they're not overly sandy. Gary then invites over a colleague, Dave Sace, a docent for the museum who shared more about those early years of racing. Here's Dave. The beach was, is, uh, was at that time much wider than it is today. Right. And it was made of coquina sand, yeah. which packed almost like concrete when the, when the tide had gone out. Yeah. And so it was just a perfect, a perfect place. And they were landing airplanes there. That was actually the first airport in Florida. They were landing airplanes there to come to the hotel on the beach. Right. And just one thing led to another and it became a bigger and bigger deal. The sand was certainly a draw for early car racing, but Dave shares that something else was attractive to the early racers. The story goes that some rich adventurers were staying at the Ormond Hotel, a now long gone hotel built in the late 1800s. These two men decided that with the flat, beautiful beaches of Daytona to the south and Ormond Beach to the north, this was the ideal place to go roaring down the sands on their fancy new automobiles. They, they decided that they would like to race some cars. Yeah. So two of them showed up. They raced on the beach that day in 1903. And then it made the newspapers up north. And their rich friends saw this, and they realized that hey, it's March. Uh, the palm trees—they were out racing cars on the beach. Let's yeah. go down, and it grew from there. And more and more of them brought their cars, and cars came from Europe, and and it just built from there. And then they started in with land speed records. Like I said, the land speed record really became the attraction for folks, and it was certainly good for local business as well. Our old friend Henry Flagler was expanding his East Coast Railway at the time and had purchased the Ormond Hotel and nearby railroads in 1890. His former business partner and the richest man in history, John D. Rockefeller, was frequently visiting Ormond in the winter. Flagler saw how attractive this area was for adventurous and rich northerners and actually began promoting this area to racers in 1903. Quote, the railroad owned by Florida developer Henry M. Flagler approved lower rates for the transport of automobiles to Ormond while his Ormond Hotel actively promoted the races and his garage worked to accommodate the racers. End quote. This was not by accident, it was a business decision. Maybe it started simple with some eccentric racers on the flat beaches, but Flagler and his business partners cultivated the enterprise in its earliest years. It completely succeeded. In 1903, racers started testing their land speed records. Alexander Winton in 1903 was 68 miles an hour. Wow. And then the next year, oh. Willie Vanderbilt one year later, he was 
92 miles an hour. Alexander Winton drove a car called Bullet Number no. 2 in 1903, setting the record of 68 miles per hour. Ten months later, William Vanderbilt, as in those Vanderbilts, went even faster in a Mercedes, doing 92 miles an hour in 32 seconds. The year after, a new record was set, 104 miles per hour by Arthur McDonald. It just went on and on from there for years. Each year passing, new folks would come down to break the record and would succeed, though some would fail. But Daytona became the place to test those limits of human speed. Now, how did they test that speed? The technology to track that sort of thing didn't exactly exist at the turn of the century. Throughout my walk through the museum with Gary, a recurring theme had popped up. Ingenuity. The folks at the forefront of racing at that time were clever, willing to engineer their vehicles or surrounding areas to achieve the best outcome. The way they measured their record-breaking speeds was no different. And the wow. reason that a lot of these land speed records say today set at Daytona Beach is that as the speeds increased, they needed more room to get up to those speeds. The wire services were set up in Daytona where mm -hmm. the measured mile was, so the speeds records were reported from Daytona Beach. Got it. So the records say Daytona. But they were coming, but they were were they were they starting in Ormond and then going Correct. to Daytona? Wow. Correct. Headed that, south. Wow, that's and they amazing. Used to, when they knew there were some of these fast, fast cars right. going to make a run, they would remove some pilings from the Daytona Pier. Really? And they would shoot through the pier and hit the measured mile. And right near where Dave, Gary, and myself are standing, there are a few interesting artifacts. One is an old vehicle, a replica of the type used at the turn of the century. It pretty much just looks like a cart with an engine and wheels. It looks more like a go-kart than it does like a car itself. Across from that is a sign that reads, Warning, Rattlesnake Area. There were people sneaking in without paying. Right. And there were rattlesnakes. <laughs> but he made sure to put these in that area to funnel people to the ticket booth. The he in that story is Bill France Sr., often called Big Bill. Big Bill owned a service station in Daytona in the 30s, and because of that, he was encountering many of the racers in this period who were down in Daytona for the records and for the increased interest in racing. The land speed records were exciting, but they were starting to get a troublesome reputation. After 20-something years of people testing land speed records, it started to look like that fad was beginning to fade. Remember Henry Seagrave from the beginning of the episode? He was one of the people that were raising the stakes of the sport in the late 20s, but things were starting to change, especially in the attitude around land speed records. Seagrave did set a land speed record on Daytona several times. The first was in 1926 in England, but then he came to Daytona and did so again. On March 29, 1927, he drove 203 miles per hour. Two years later, almost to the day, he broke the record again, going 231 miles an hour. But this was the end of that quest for him. See, there was a friendly rivalry happening between British and American racers. Each wanted to be the country to hold the land speed record. When Henry Seagrave took the land speed record back, some Americans wanted to reclaim the title. A man named Jim White hired a driver, Lee Bible, to drive his car, the Triplex Special, on Daytona to take the land speed record back for America. 
It was March 13, 1929, just two days after Henry Seagrave broke the record. Lee Bible failed on his first attempt, and when he tried to break the record a second time on the turnaround, he swerved his car and was flung from the vehicle, dying on impact. The out-of-control vehicle spiraled and killed a cameraman, capturing a newsreel of the event. It was a tragedy and a warning sign. The land speed records were not for the faint of heart. Seagrave himself was so distraught that he never attempted a land speed record again. Instead, he pivoted to water speed records, roaring boats over the water as fast as he could. Just 15 months after Lee Bible died on the sands of Daytona Beach, Henry Seagrave himself and his chief engineer died in a boating accident while breaking the water speed record in Windermere, England. By the mid-30s, land speed records were less likely to be attempted at Daytona. Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah became a much more popular spot for such attempts, though one more iconic figure did make his mark in Daytona, Malcolm Campbell. Most people in this field know who Malcolm Campbell is. He is an extremely important figure. His iconic vehicle, the Bluebird, is the first thing you spot while stepping through the front entrance of the Motorsports Hall of Fame. It is a massive blue car, almost science fiction in appearance with how much it resembles a spaceship. This is the Bluebird. Sir Malcolm Campbell drove that. Yeah. That did 276 miles an hour on the beach in 1935. That's the actual vehicle? That's the actual vehicle. Wow. It's got a Rolls-Royce V12 in it, which later turned into the Merlin engines in P-51 Mustangs in World War II fighter planes. Wow. Yeah. So what? I guess they were trying to blow them up on the ground before they took them up in the air. <laughs> this is one hell of a machine, and Malcolm Campbell was just the person to drive it. He served in the First World War, and just as so many, started focusing on the land speed record in the 20s. He broke the land speed record nine times during his lifetime. He's from England, uh, apparently very well-to-do, yeah. came from a well-to-do family, and... I know, kind of the poor little rich boy, I need something to do type thing, I guess. In September of 1935, he was the first person to drive over 300 miles per hour. He did that in Utah, but six months earlier, he broke the land speed record in Daytona Beach by going 272 miles an hour. He was one of the last major figures to leave his mark here with land speed records. That era was over for Daytona. Though it would continue to be a popular event through the 50s, it never really reached that peak of popularity again. A new form of automobile racing was capturing the public interest. Big Bill saw that the land speed records were falling out of fashion and instead racing was attracting more attention. That spot of land where the land speed records were being attempted was nice and all, but what they really needed was a track, a loop, somewhere racers could fly down the beach, make a turn, race down a roadway, and wind back up where they started. They found just the spot. Today, there is a bar called Racing's North Turn. Full up of cars and directly adjacent to a massive condo parking lot, it is a squat old building. There are checkered racing flags that wave right next to the beach access directly to the south of the restaurant. That is indeed where the north turn of that track was. If you drive further south along that same road, eventually you'll find the second checkered flag marking the south turn of the track. This was, by all accounts, the first true racing track in Daytona. 
Driving the length of it, I was stunned by its length. You'd think it would be a quick circle, but it is long. And though the road has been repaved and the island looks completely different than it did back then, you can at least in some way imagine the fleet of cars roaring down these roads all those years ago. If you are looking to see this track from above, there are certainly maps online, but the best aerial view I have seen is plastered on a wall in the heart of the Motorsports Hall of Fame in Daytona. I love this picture because you can see the density of people that are here to see. There's stands, there's people here, cars as far as the eye can see, and then there's even more people down there. Right. I mean, right. And what this, is this person on top? Or is that the front of a plane? This is the wing of a plane. Oh, see? At the foot of this beautiful photograph is a slab of concrete preserved from the original track. The photo is taken from a plane overhead. It shows a race full of old cars around the original racetrack. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are piled into the stands, their cars packed onto the beach, all here to see the big race. The land speed records maybe fell out of popularity, but the cars did not. Racing was bigger than ever. On the same sands that adventurers would send their cars flying down the beach trying to defy human capability, now dozens of drivers would pile into their vehicles, not trying to be the fastest ever, just trying to be faster than the other guy. World War II certainly slowed down racing, mechanics needed to aid the war effort, but once the conflict was over, racing came back in a big way. Big Bill saw that if this was going to grow the way he wanted it to, there needed to be some organization. Certainly he was interested in making some money from the project, but he knew people wanted to make it official. So in December of 1947, Bill France Sr., alongside other leaders in the racing industry, met at the Streamline Hotel in Daytona Beach. Plans were written, agreements were made, and on that day, the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing was born. Today, most folks just call it NASCAR. Three months later, the beach course was alive with noise. Spectators piled in on the old seats and a variety of cars arrived at the track. They weren't all stock cars. Stock cars, by the way, basically just means that they are cars that aren't modified from their original factory forms. That's usually what a stock car is. It was February 15th, 1948, and on the beaches of Daytona, the very first NASCAR race took place. Robert Byron, affectionately called Red Byron, was 32 years old when he took to the beach and became the first NASCAR winner taking the race that day. 16 months later, the first exclusively stock car race was held by NASCAR in North Carolina, but in October of 1949, the first stock car race in Daytona was held. Who else but Red Byron, again, took the title, becoming the inaugural champion of the Daytona NASCAR race. Racing started to be everywhere. There were obviously competitors to NASCAR, though none quite as successful. More tracks popped up in Florida, and not just on the beaches. Not too far from where I am right now, Red Byron himself raced on a track called the Seminole Speedway in the lake-heavy ecosystems of Seminole County. Today, that track is a subdivision. In Panama City, alongside the Panhandle, the Panama City Beach Speedway sprung up for some time in the 70s, only for it to be overgrown and left behind. Raceways came and went, but NASCAR just grew and grew, and Big Bill France saw that while the beach racetrack was traditional and exciting, it was limited. You could only fit so many people into those stands, and you could only go so fast. Bill wanted somewhere that could be full up with visitors, where drivers could ramp up their speeds, and a permanent place could be set for racing fans to come to. This could be their hub. 
1953, planning was put into motion, and by November of 1957, the team broke ground on the Daytona International Speedway. That is a story for another day. In the shadow of the Speedway today, the Motorsports Hall of Fame welcomes guests just after they have taken a tour of the Speedway by tram. Directly after the tour, you are ushered through the back door of the museum. Every few minutes during my chat with Gary Chapels, he had to break away and welcome folks to the museum. He would stand in front of the most recent Daytona 500 champion. When I was there, it was Michael McDowell's number 34 bright yellow vehicle, still a little banged up from its race. Let me show you this real quick. Yeah. Every year, it, uh, the Daytona 500 winner gets displayed here. Wow. They've done it for years and years and years. If, you're, if you enter the Daytona 500, you're contractually obligated to, to give the track your car for a year. <laughs> so this one was confiscated. <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> it was confiscated. Uh, left side of the car is in really good shape. If you go around to the back, the, the right side of the car is all torn up. He was in a wreck on uh, lap 15. But was wow. able to piece together the car good enough to, to finish and win the race. So. From where I am standing with Gary, I am maybe 20 paces away from where our tour started at the rumbling old vehicle that once drove along Daytona's beaches, setting records for eccentric rich folks looking for an interesting way to spend their beach vacation. And if you drive your car maybe 30 minutes from the parking lot of the Daytona Speedway, you can see the original track as well. Most of it you can still drive yourself, though obviously not at racing speed. It's only been about 130 years, and though cars and automobile racing have changed exponentially in that time, the thrill has never quite faded. The Daytona Speedway is home to the Daytona 500, raced every year in February, around the same date that the very first NASCAR race occurred on Daytona Beach all those years ago. It's notable to me how close that original Daytona racer is to the Daytona 500 NASCAR vehicle. And I don't just mean proximity. There isn't much difference in the basics of the vehicle. Wheels, engine, frame, driver. Whether it's the 1890s or 2021, that's all you really need for a little bit of adventure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some amazing stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Though this is my first time really talking about racing, this is certainly not my first time talking about sports. I talked about the Big Sombrero, which is Tampa's old stadium last year. I've talked about Jackie Robinson. I've talked about spring training baseball. There are links to those in the episode description. Go check those out. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com and thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. 
If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. I'll be updating past transcripts from episodes as well, so you can go back and revisit your favorite previous episodes in brand new ways. I took plenty of pictures on my trip to the Motorsports Hall of Fame, and I will have uploaded those to the website, so go check those out. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph by our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle About Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFF merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to my two tour guides at the Motorsports Hall of Fame, Gary Chapels and Dave Sace. They were so much fun. We had such a long chat. I actually am going to be including more of our conversation in an episode down the line. We just talked about so much that I couldn't fit into the episode, so you'll be hearing more from the Motorsports Hall of Fame guys very soon. But until then, go pay them a visit. It is a wonderful museum even if you're not a huge racing fan there is such exciting stuff to see in there it's just like candy it's so colorful and beautiful go pay them a visit when you get the chance all right next week is a very special episode it is the three year anniversary of wait five minutes and i'm going to explore a topic that is near and dear to every floridian's heart we are going to spend the entire episode exploring the importance the ecology and the life of a Florida beach. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others. If you haven't gotten your vaccine yet, look into it to help protect your neighbors. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. I'll talk to you next Monday.